you say you're going to see him later today? Are you going no, down, we'll are you going down the pub there, all, you know? Ollie? I'm just a little north, just a little north, not too yeah, far. So it's yeah. funny when I when I was working there in the north in the noughties, um, I guess yeah, I guess he called me Ollie. So and he's that's the start. That's what so a lot of people do call me Ollie. Like my wife calls me Ollie, um, mm. but I don't feel it's very professional uh, these days. As I've got old and boring, I've decided that Oliver is more fitting and it's a more mm. you know, mature name. It has more gravitas. Yeah, so, as a, a did you, yeah. but you didn't What's add your middle name in there. Where's your middle name? Shouldn't it be like? Oliver Tecumseh Crunk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the whole the whole thing about names actually. The reason I the reason I say it is because I got so teased by my about my middle name and my surname at school when Aww. I first when I first went to uni. I just told everyone I was Ollie for like six months. I didn't tell anyone any other name because um, I got sick of just being ribbed for for my for my names because I stupidly think told my school friends what they were. And I may have told you this before, but like one of them is Paul, so fairly normal. But then the other one is Camille, K-A-M-I-E-L, which is the name of my Belgian great-grandfather. But of course, school kids being school kids decided to call me Camel. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. I got like, yeah, no, it is funny. <laughs> Looking back, it is funny. But like, I had six years of Camel. I'm like, right, I'm not going to uni and I'm not being called Camel for three years at university. So. <laughs> well, I think we just have the cold open right there. Excellent. Yeah, well set. Well set. Um, so you, have, you have two middle names. Is that what you just told us? Yeah, 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 yeah. Paul, Paul, sadly, is the uncle that I never got to know because he died of leukemia when he was ten, so in the sixties. And Camille is yeah, my my Belgian great grandfather. Yes. Oh. Well, sorry we... to hear, but uh, can't hide money. Really, congratulations. Two middle names. I was so it's poor. A very unique name. Actually, I don't even have one. So that's the. Thing. I mean, there are there are two Oliver Cronks in the in, in the UK. I think maybe even in the world, but there's only one Oliver Paul Camille Cronk. Wow. Of course, naturally. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm not I'm not going to go into my middle names. You think? Oh you, no, you're going to have to now. He, he made it up. You think you were humiliated? Um, <gasps> Come on, tell us. So the Lockhart's um, one branch of the family. Um, you were married with the McDonald's, right? So for a long time, they were known as the McDonald Lockharts, hyphenated. Um, I had a grandfather. My grandfather was Ronald no. Lockhart. No. Ronald Gardner, Gardner Lockhart. And so Christopher, Ronald, McDonald, uh, McDonald. Not the Irish, the Scottish. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> wow. Sorry. You're welcome. You're telling you, people you win, what, your, your kids clowned around with you about that. So you're telling you, me, Chris. Chris, you, you win. You win. <laughs> and, and by the way, that's that's the cold open right there. <laughs> yeah, the oh. thing is, he couldn't even bring himself to say it all together. Right? Like, <laughs> like, oh, you have to figure this out on your own. Oh God, that was good. <laughs> yeah. Wendy's yeah, reaction is amazing. <laughs> yeah. I agree. Oh, Wendy, she's going to have a. a <laughs> I got to um, stop thinking about it. <laughs> it's the way you say it. And my middle name is Ronald. <laughs> oh, gosh.
Hi, welcome to another episode of Consultants Saying Things. I am Chris Lockhart. Very special episode. This is number 50. 50 episodes of this podcast. Four years ago, we started out talking about uh, design thinking, and we've gone through a whole bunch of different topics since then. Um, what I wanted to do for this is basically go back and take a look at the top five episodes by viewership uh, over the past four years and pull out some clips uh, from those five episodes uh, to be able to show to everybody uh, some of the, the journey that we've been on over this time. What's really interesting about this is I've pulled out stuff that I don't think made the final cut. Um, there's some stuff, never before seen footage, that sort of thing, um, which I kind of find interesting. Um, and it was really eye-opening to see what were the top five episodes out of 50 over the past four years. So, um, you know, we're going to start with um, the most watched episode ever and most listened to ever, which is uh, episode 14. It was the one about Agile uh, being BS. Um, very popular episode uh, still being watched by you guys today. So uh, that's up first. It's followed by, believe it or not, one that we just recorded just late last year. The one about business architecture. Really popular, really great uh, conversation around business architecture. Um, the third is actually an episode that, I'll be honest, I had forgotten about. Uh, this is an episode about consulting 4.0, um, which as you'll see in the conversation, uh, we had a lot to say about what we thought that meant. Um, following that, the number four episode um, is actually the one about the PMO. So this is a very interesting conversation that we had about PMO uh, with uh, an old colleague of mine and, and an expert in the PMO. Um, and uh, it's a very, very interesting conversation uh, to, to bring from a couple years back into, into today. And the, uh, the fifth most watch is also another one that we just recently recorded. And this has really got to do with ethics in consulting, um, which was really fascinating uh, late last year when we were talking about uh, ethics uh, in, in, our, in our panel. So I hope you enjoy these five episodes. Again, thank you all for watching um, all this time. Uh, please go check out the, the YouTube channel um, and subscribe. Subscribe and like, as we say uh, on the podcast. So I uh, hope you enjoy this. This is the 50th episode of Consultants Saying Things. First up, the most watched episode ever. Episode 14, the one about Agile being bullshit. I love by the way, by the way, yeah. Phil is, is strangely silent right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I was trying to figure out where you were getting to with this bit, right? I mean, to me, and I, I don't know, I, I, you know, I'm not one who sat around and thought about where Agile came from. But if I were thinking about where it, what it looks like from my point of view, right? It was like, is this not a response to waterfall? It was a response to these big overblown systems where everything got defined and we didn't get to the end because we got caught up in some process. And I get it as a response to that. But I mean, I, I get that your, or what I think is your real complaint about this is not that things can't be fast, loose, and out of control, but that some people are using it as a cover for just bad practices or lack of discipline. Yes. And if it would make money by promoting bad, bad discipline and you know, lack of practice. Yeah. So if, if, if you step back, right, you said it started off in 2001, but this thing has caught up extremely fast in the last few years, and especially when the new you know, native digital companies like Google's and Facebook's of the world started becoming most active. So here is my experience. When I work with large enterprises, 
traditionally you have legacy systems um they need something to business need some features to be developed if it goes through the regular process it takes like numerous months for them to build something and you know time to market is very high right then take numerous months and years to build something they needed something faster because in today's world if you think of something if you can't deploy in a matter of probably few weeks or months then the, that idea becomes obsolete so they needed a faster way to do that when they looked around what's available probably agile has caught fire at that time and said you know what let's do agile agile business agile product development agile software development but what they forgot was agile was not in the dna of the company it's a way people think people needs to be smart enough to adopt that you can't train legacy mindset people to become agile overnight and that's right get around that's that's my thing around agile's bullshit is because you got a big you got a top four selling something that your top technical companies that the ones they're selling the you know the service to want to model themselves after but yet those top companies don't do safe they don't do scrum and i'm going to be i'm going to be loose with that um because they do representative types of management practices but they're not doing what your top four sells specifically so where they start from is you know the, i agree with you they don't do pure agile or pure scrum what they start off with is they try to understand what their company culture is then they take something which is closest available but they customize it to their need their culture their people and to their own demand and they call it probably something else and all of a sudden if that company becomes successful everybody starts following saying that this is the next big thing and rest of the corporate world you know starts running towards that and then consulting firms will start building practices around that and people who have read those books uh would say that you know we will help you build um this particular agile practice and they have never done this in their life what is agile what does people talk about at the end of the day in agile like the four anybody go to agilemanifesto.org you'll see have their four pillars right individuals of interactions working software customer collaboration responding to change chris as you talked about lean once you get back into and it's funny there's a good argument that even the 12 Uh, was the 12 things they have in there are comparable to Deming's 14 points which is in lean or this coming from I'm getting back to a point where is like you get the scrum and like these agile frameworks this is why I think this is why I call bullshit on most agile because yeah. people want to go back to a project management thing and do something new yet disregard the fundamental aspects and you go back to the culture of how this operates is like how the human business process operates so so look my discipline is mostly enterprise architecture right it has been for most of my career and this is a uh, a discipline that has in numerous no that's not a word in numerous in innumerable many a plethora in, of infinitesimal infinitesimal amount <laughs> of um frameworks right frameworks out of frame like frameworks out the wazoo for how you do it right how you're supposed to do it and i'm uh, picking up on something shashi said right you know there is no one way to do many of these things right there are many different ways and they have to be fit for purpose right they have to be customized to fit your particular enterprise this comes up because someone says hey this isn't going fast enough or we're not delivering or you know 
kind of where Bill was in the beginning of this thing, which is we uh, we started down this path, but the environment changed or we missed a requirement or something comes along the path. And we just feel like the, the process we're using doesn't respond quickly enough. Yeah. I think this is how things go from one spot to another. But, you know, the thing is, I can sense in you guys in particular, there's a real passion for something being wrong here, right? There is something that doesn't smell right about what's happening here. And it feels like it's all slick. It feels like it's all form and no substance. And so then the question becomes, you know, can we suss that out? Can we figure out what the core is that we do need to have? And how do we go in and detect this BS and cure it when we need to? I think that's the best way for agile itself to come to fruition is the people who are the closest to the customer, people who are closest to the work, to make decisions on how the work itself should progress to the endpoint. I want to say I have never heard the passion for Agile in any other context that I have in this room here right now, right? Nobody is like this about it. I mean, that's not a thing that I come across, right? I mean, I come across a bunch of passionate developers, but, you know, the guys that I spend the most time with, they're interested in, in the same way that you are in getting the work done, right? Being useful. And if this is part of the system, they're all for it. But if it gets in the way, they they go do something else. In summary, for me, A, it is not bullshit. Uh, B, we, it's not the solution to all the problem. You have to take the fundamental good practices, what it has to offer and customize it to your context. Context is extremely important. For my part, I think it comes down to delivering value, which we talked about. I think it can be done in many different ways, right? You think you could do it waterfall or not. And I think it has to be fit for purpose. And, uh, you know, I am with you that there tends to be an overemphasis on slick marketing and sales uh, by consulting firms. Um, so I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle that, you know, maybe the, the way it's sold and marketed is bullshit. Uh, but, you know, if you are getting results from it, you know, it's hard to argue with the scoreboard. So... The second most watched episode, episode 46, the one about business architecture. But I mean, I don't know, are there, is there, is there a problem in this space that needs to be addressed? Yeah, does, actually, does business architecture suffer from a crisis of identity like enterprise architecture often has? Well, it does. But actually, um, I will say we've been breaking through for a while now, and this actually gets to the strategic positioning. So it does suffer from the Swiss Army knife, but it's gained real traction upstream as a translator of strategy execution, right? right. Translator of strategy. So that's really, that's really the problem. It's all, and it's like once if, 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 because that pain is usually so bad in organizations, if you can get them to acknowledge it, mm. um, then you can open up the Swiss Army knife and use it for other things. But it's okay. been good in for so brilliant question, brilliant. Okay. Question. All right. Brilliant. So, it, it, so, and maybe that you answer this during the opening monologue or whatever. But the difference between BA and EA, right? Business is how the business communicates. Enterprise is how we structure the software. Or am I thinking about? Something oh, I think we should. Hold, I think we should hold that until we're in. Let's do it. Because okay. that was going to be that was going to be a point I was going to kind of talk 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 about as well. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Which is not as interesting as the why it is. So, but what it is is business architecture is a set of views for an organization. 
So let's break that down a little bit. Um, if we were to think about um, a set of blueprints for a home, which might be easier, there's different layers, right? There might be a facade, there might be electrical, there might be plumbing. Organizations have blueprints as well, but they're different layers. They're things like the capabilities, the reusable building blocks that describe what we do, their value streams, their information, products we sell, and a bunch of other things. So if we think about business architecture as sort of this cohesive blueprint, um, again, set of views for an organization, that's what it is. So to unpack that tiny bit more, there's an organization called the Business Architecture Guild, which has formalized those views. And basically, there's 10 different, 10 different views don't need to go into detail, but it's important to say that we're no longer out there making up what it is and what it isn't. It's 10 specific things. And what makes the business architecture unique is that it's a view of an entire organization. So we have lots and lots of fragmented views of what we do. This is the one place where we see the forest for the trees entirely what we do as an organization from end to end at a very high level. And that allows us to do some pretty cool things. Well, but wait a second. Isn't that enterprise architecture? Oliver, what's the difference? Yeah, so I think business architecture, so this is my slightly controversial view, we're interested in what Wendy thinks, but I think business architecture exists because enterprise architecture failed. And by that, I mean enterprise architecture became too IT dominated, right? I think. Wait, wait, wait. Can, are we, can we quote you? We're going to flash that quote up. And on LinkedIn, and everyone was going to say, Oliver said, <laughs> EA failed. You, you, you cut me mid-flow. In most organizations, I'm going to Oh, say, okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Right? I think there are some organizations that matter, because a true enterprise architect, someone who can look at the, the, the broad aspects of the business, the different layers, the, this, you know, as well as the technology, I think is a very rare person indeed. And I think what happened is you had... Um, the architecture profession fragment. I think initially you had an enterprise architect in the early days. I think the role is fragmented into more business-facing architects, more uh, domain architects that perhaps look after certain platforms or certain parts of the business. So maybe like you know mortgages and banking and retail account, you know, current accounts, whatever, uh, checking accounts. I think that what's happened is architecture, as organizations have become more complex and the interactions between organizations, supply chains and things like that have got become more co complex. There's been a need for more architecture and that's where you've seen the fragmentation. And I think BA in an ideal world is a subset of, of EA. So business architecture is a component of enterprise architecture, but the challenge is you can't find many enterprise architects who can do everything. So what you have is, uh, I think, some generalist enterprise architects and then I think you have specialist business architects when you really want to get to the nitty gritty of What's the business model all about? What capabilities do we really have at a high level? We don't really care about the technical nitty gritty at this point in time. We just care about how this organization operates functions and how it could be optimized. And then I think once you've established that, you can then get into, all right, what does the technology architecture look like? And I think these days it requires a good uh, group of architects to really get the full enterprise architecture picture. Wendy, what's your view on that? I could not agree more with every single thing you just said. Chris? Just muted. You're on mute. Yeah. There we go. As I was saying, um, <laughs> you, you, you realize, of course, and like a little bit back to what Phil was talking about, right? Um, you know, these are, these are 
this is going to sound bad. I don't really mean it this way. These are sort of esoteric concepts, how the business operates, right? I mean, when you talk to a lot of folks on the ground, it's like, no, 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 we use SAP to do this, this, and this, and, you know, Informatica to do managed file transfer, right? And in their mind, that's how the business works. Do you know what I mean? Right? So how, how do we, how do we get, how do we get people who think like that and people who think up here with incense and I don't know, magic wands and, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> Right, sort of stuff, right? How do how do we get those people talking? Because it sounds to me like they are living in different worlds. Am I wrong? But I I, I remember talking to the Oracle consulting guys, and they're saying, "Hey, listen, our software does this. This is the way you run your business." I mean, including like the costing models and stuff like that. Right? This is the way you send an invoice. The way we tell you to send an invoice. I'm like, my God, this is, you know, this is a complicated business, and it's been across, you know, it's multiple countries and all of this stuff and you no, that's not what happens but uh, i really I, remember walking in going this is the way you do it i think what you're talking about though is far lower level and and i th- I, th- I think you're right i think it's horses for courses right this is wait wait, 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 wait. What, what did you just say horses it's for courses horses for courses okay so should is i start a, me on that my understanding of that term my understanding <laughs> maybe my understanding of the term is you have horses that do show jumping Ah, yes, I, I, I think, and then you have race horses for the Grand National, uh, which is a gotcha. you, know, uh, you know. So I think that's what it means. And maybe you have a Shire horse for pulling your heavy equipment. Um, that's why they use draft horses to pull beer. I mean, it's built into their name. <laughs> so, so what does a cat on the ground do? If you're a consultant, let's say, and you're in one of these companies doing whatever and you identify this need, that's one category. And I think the other is sort of what you were referring to, Phil. You, you're in a cubicle in one of these companies, right? Or what, I don't even know what we call it now. You're in a Zoom box at one of these companies. You know, how do you, in those scenarios, are there things that you can do? Are there opportunities that you should be looking at taking advantage of? We know how to handle this poorly, right? The house is on fire. It's all going to burn down. I mean, screaming fire. That's the problem. That is a problem. Right? That is a catastrophe. Catastrophe. Yeah, it's, it's exactly a CBT model or a CBT term. Catastrophizing, right? Catastrophizing this doesn't work because everyone looks at you and goes, that's alarmist. And even if he's right, I don't want to listen to a knucklehead that talks like that. Yes. So how do you do it? I mean, I think you have to be in the spot where you're talking to the right people. And I always love talking to the people who are closest to the customer because they are the ones that will care the most about this kind of stuff typically and say, I'm looking for a way. I mean, approach this like a sane human being. I'm looking for ways to take friction out of this. I'm looking for ways to do this better and on target perhaps who should be part of that conversation. I'm wondering, do you think, you know, I was like the idea of asking good questions. That's my idea. Ask good questions and let them come to the conclusion that it's time to do something else. I'm sorry, that was me. Socratic Phil, go ahead. I don't know. Wendy, it's an Alenkis. Alenkis. You're the expert here. What, what, what about those cats? Yeah, well, you know- Or dogs. Some- Cats or, or dogs. Or dogs. Or do- we, we had a dog on the show just earlier today. Yeah, yeah exactly. Sure. exactly. Um, you know, there, there's always in the back of my mind, lead with value, deliver value, build as you go, right? And if you see this as a valuable discipline for an organization to have for 
all the variety of reasons that we've laid out here, whether you're a consultant or whether you're someone internally, it's about getting traction, finding that usage, build, you know, just enough, just in time and start using it. I will say also for um, consultants or even folks in a tool space, you can embed, and I have certainly seen people do, you can embed uh, business architecture in the products or services that you offer and how you present things as well, right? So that's another way to do it. But I also think there's opportunity for consultants to help people and organizations start and grow their practices and do a really good job at it. The third most watched episode surprised us all. Episode 22, the one about consulting 4.0. I'm kind of like, oh, is this the new and improved tide? Listen, I want to start out and I want to claim that I'm an undecided voter, but really I'm on team cod swallop on this one, right? I just don't get this thing of why it was all 4.0. I think it's just hype, but I'm willing to have that conversation. Convince me that we're solving a new problem. Convince me that the, we've not been delivering to the clients what they need or that they need something brand new from us. And I'll be with you. But right now, it just sounds like uh, you know, it just sounds like a badge we've stuck on a product. Hey, it, this is merchandising of our consulting practice. And uh, by the way, I'm, I'm gone. I don't know about consulting 4.0. I'm doing 5G consulting now. That's, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I skipped over 4.0. Let's just, just go to 6.0. Consulting yeah. 6.0. That's what okay. we need. You know, we've always, we've always sort of done these like consulting engagements where we're going to, we're doing a transformation. We're going to transform. And it always... It always struck me as something that the firm I was working for that we were doing to the client, right? Like we know better. So we're going to come in and, and transform you. And here's your new org structure and here are your value streams. And this is how you should think about. And so what I'm doing right now is a little bit different, right? This is much more co-creation of, of, a, of a, a new way of working in this one particular part of this FS firm that I'm, I've been working at for a while. And to me, that's different. It, I mean, honestly, I almost feel like an employee, which could be good, could be bad. It depends on how you look at it. But I feel like I'm, I'm in the middle of, 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 of helping this client. We're co-creating something together to help them work better. But there's two different things here. Like, so uh, consulting one, two, and three. Really, I think of that as trickle-down technology. Um, and that's, re that's referenced back to trickle-down economics, right? Like, Chris, what you're saying, we come in and we know better than you. We're going to flow this down to you. So what's interesting about 4.0 is you have clients reaching out. And, it's, and I'm straddled between 3.0 and 4.0 right now. Because I got some clients I'm doing 3.0 stuff with. But I got some clients coming forward. We're talking about business ventures and going in together where they're asking me to bring in the skill of building, not just building the technology, because frankly, building tech is easy. I can go outsource any tech anywhere as long as I have requirements and do it for $15 an hour in some, you know, non-US place. Uh, but knowing what to build and how to, um, and those, uh, those mindsets and those approaches to evolving the product uh, to meet a customer value, I think that's where consulting 4.0 is going. And that's why I think that it's actually, it's, it's, I'll say it's in its infancy. Um, because one, two, and three have been democratized due to just open information. Um, the information that consulting companies had that made them valuable is not what makes them valuable anymore. Um, in, in our age of digital products, that's the true value right there. So I think that's where you're seeing consultancy 4.0 coming in and actually saying, okay, here's how you, I call it become a tech company. This is always what I've said is, this is how you become a tech company.
relationship. But I want to read you something off of, I won't say which consulting company. It's a large consulting company. I'm going to read to you something here, and I kind of want to get your reaction. Okay, we combine top consulting talents with IP assets and technology to deliver what we call augmented consulting or consulting 4.0. What does that wow. mean? What does that mean? I don't think you're supposed to know. It's like part of a sacred text. Yes, and then we'll tell you. Yeah. yeah. Listen, you'll pay to know what you really think. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I get it. I mean, there's this, you know, as a consultant, right? I mean, certainly we're bringing expertise and experience to a problem, right? I mean, and if I understand where Bill is headed, it's like we're going to go create new things. But I just, I've got to believe that over the annals of consultancy, there's lots of times where consulting engagements have yielded new products or new product lines, right? I mean, that's, it's just, it's a development cycle. It's, we make stuff. That's what we do, right? Yeah. Give me three seconds. I want to answer that. Yes and no. Yes, you create new things. But in my experience, once you leave with a new product created, it's the maintenance and it's the evolution into a longer term um, set of products and features that fall short on the client company. I've seen multiple times where I've gone in with a project and I'm going to use the word project because I <laughs> built a product as part of a project. There's a finite beginning and finite end. And you try to transition, but then you look back six, eight months to see how they're doing. And they have gone either no further than when you left and or they've regressed because they don't have the skill sets to continue the product development on it. So I'm going to stop there. That's why I think this is different. And Chris, I don't know what big company you're reading. That was my BS meter peg. That was somebody marketing using big buzzwords, trying to sell $600 an hour services for you know, who knows what they are, but yeah, I mean, uh, I want to, I want to, there's another sentence after that, which may push your bullshit meter off the charts. Right. Um, so after they talk about augmented consulting, the future, the future Conan, yes, the future, the future is data and people driven. And we want our teams to pioneer these new approaches. Keep in mind, none of those new approaches are actually defined anywhere on the page. The main difference in 4.0 is these consulting companies have been blamed for uh, just providing high-level vision and telling the companies what to do and walk out of the door. So one change which we are seeing in 4.0, I believe, is helping them through the execution because the companies, that's where they fail. So they need more support on hand-holding them during the execution phase and not just helping them just devise the strategy. I know you are itching to say something. Go ahead. I want to say it a different way. This may be a good quote. So I'm like, be quiet. So what you're saying, Shashi, is somebody like me walks in against a big four, and because they need five people to create vision and create a product, I can just kick their ass, charge 500 bucks an hour, still be way cheaper, and get out with a working product um, because they're still stuck in an old model Whereas I don't want to use the term agile, but I can go from cradle to grave. And I being a 4.0 consultant who's driving and disrupting the industry because, you know, now whatever company it is, they don't need a full team of junior people for three months to come up with requirements. You have a person like Bill Benson who comes in and within three weeks has a two product, a two market product that's already generating ROI. So that is the challenge. So more and more we see even within our firm, we are looking at, when we go and do some sort of an assessment, see, here is how the traditional consulting works. You go to the client, 
okay we are going to assess your environment we will define your future state we will develop a road map for you and we will develop a business case these are the four key things no matter which where you started 10 years ago 15 years ago and what you do now consulting firms do these four things so the situation is changing now is help them define the future first when we say define we don't mean putting a few powerpoint slide and this is exactly what you mentioned you need to build prototype for them you need to build something which they can touch feel and see a minimum viable product and then early in the phase before you build the roadmap or anything of that sort so people can see and it it is at some level it is market validated or tested um we've been making stuff all along right 4.0 i mean as this article started the thing that we use as the core for this conversation it says that we are makers and i would attest that consultants have always been makers at some level right i mean that's part of what you do it's a there is a gap and we fill the gap you know the whether that's a uh, you know a thin layer of caulk between two existing system or brand new bridge we're building something but, but mckinsey's and bcgs of the world never used to build anything they were not makers i think where it comes from is key if this article was written by you know traditional uh, management consulting firm yes they were never makers they would just come they would tell the companies what to do they would never do that for them now have we have at some level have we not always been kind of doing this maybe maybe it's not an actual product that we're producing but haven't we always been providing this level of of advice and expertise um and it maybe not i mean maybe that was you know maybe there was a difference there right and that was kind of the consulting versus the software development or yes. what however you might want to exactly. say it right so teams came in and did things so if i brought in uh, and and that's a distinction i guess i've not really thought about a lot which is you know kind of back to shashi's point the difference between bringing in for example mckenzie versus an oracle consulting or something yep. like that fourth most watched episode 18 the one about the pmo and a lot of the reasons why pmos fail is because the people who are in charge of them um don't really know how to get it up the first time right and so i saw that as an opportunity and i thought you know what maybe i can go ahead and help uh fellow pmo leaders to to make it uh make it work for them uh so that they don't have to you know google stuff up they don't have to go ahead and piece new things together they don't have to figure it out while uh you know building relationships figuring out a roadmap trying to convince the value of something that really should be there uh and so on so that they have something that's set and 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 uh tested that they can apply immediately to their situations So Chris if you're done interviewing should we start ripping project management apart <laughs> <laughs> Nice <laughs> Bill's not here Bill's not here to interject that Yeah, yeah. so I'm going to I'm going to do that right so so there is I'm like many people under the I mean I would love to hear from you Hussein uh, many people under the what do you say cover of calling themselves as project managers Yeah. are essentially nothing more than project administrators yeah right so how would you differentiate between somebody playing the role of a project administrator uh, versus a true project manager yeah and let me throw in another another word uh, another phrase that's going around out there shashi is it's project leader right 
because management is not enough, uh, you know, and, and so leadership is, is being thrown under the bus as well here. But uh, that's a great question. And honestly, that's one of the reasons why PM was have such a bad rep. Uh, according to the Association for Project Management, 50% of PMOs fail three years after they're being, you know, after they're being set up. So if you ask me to set up a PMO today and ask me, hey, Sam, will this be successful? I could literally flip up a coin and say heads is going to succeed and uh, tails is going to fail in three years. And, you know, I know we're going to be talking about the value of, the P of PMOs, but PMOs can be far more valuable to organizations than the probability of a coin toss. And uh, if somebody's there who's just taking orders, who's just doing things in a very templated way, who's not putting their thinking cap on, who's who's not uh, showing a bit of a spine in, in their backbone, they're your administrators, right? They're there who are just going to be taking orders. They're they're not really managing. They're definitely not leading. They're just doing what they've been told. And so, you know, I would say in certain situations, project coordinators could do more uh, than just, you know, being administrative in nature. But uh, a lot of the, uh, and I see a lot of people with a lot of credentials and a lot of experience falling under that project administrative um, category, sadly so. Um, you know, a lot of people just want to get those um, cr uh, credentials, if you will. Uh, you know, a lot of alphabets after their names, but, you know, it's, it's, they're not applying that in, in real life. They're not applying that in, in how their leadership, how their stakeholders really want them to lead their project successfully. The ultimate, real, the ultimate thing that we need to do as project managers or program managers or portfolio managers or, or PMO leaders is to make sure that things get done. Right. And things get done in, in not just on time, on budget, uh, on quality, in under scope, whatever, but rather what the reasons for the projects or the program or the portfolio were there, those get realize, right? So the funny thing that I see in, in projects everywhere, in programs everywhere, is that we're going to spend, you know, tons and tons of effort and resources and, and thinking cap on to build that business case, right? We're figuring out like all these different ways to analyze what benefits the, the project can bring to the table so that it can pass through the intake process. And then once that's done, once the project's approved, once the program's approved, then you know, nobody really looks at the business case. Nobody really looks at what's going to happen, how the project is actually going to help the company, why it's actually being, you know, set up, why it's actually being executed. And that is the unfortunate part. So, you know, you can call it any, any sort of fancy term, program value realization, benefits realization, ROI, whatever you want to call it. If nobody's keeping an eye on those things, that you promise at the start of the project, that it doesn't really matter how on how much on time, how much on budget your project was. I, I think you know certifications are required um, if you want to learn something new, right? So same thing again with PMO. If you have done like you know you have credential or portfolio or project to show as a program manager or a PMO lead, um, you probably don't know certain need certification per se. I, I agree. I'm not a big fan of these certifications, to be honest. 
you know, if you have 10 years of pro project management experience, who cares if you have a PMP? If you're managing, you know, programs above $30 million, who cares if you, if you don't have the PGMP? And there's another one sitting out there for a portfolio management. It doesn't really matter. Um, all right. So, so Hussein, what, what does good project management look like? <laughs> Just get things done. There are a few things that I look at and I break out the skills of a PMO leader into four distinct categories. Uh, you know, there's the people skills, there's the organizational skills, um, oh, there's the functional skills, and then there's obviously the project skills. To me, the project skills are the last to consider. The people skills are, are, the, are the most important to consider. Interestingly, when I've, when I've launched, uh, glanced through many project management office leadership opportunities, the, the job descriptions out there, you know, they're, they're saying, you know, PMP preferred, preferred MBA, uh, you know, a couple of other things as well in there. So it's a good thing that there are people are looking for things around uh, uh, having an organizational awareness or pur purview. But to me, the, the best person who could lead the charge with, you know, for, for a PMO like that is someone who's been in the organization for a bit and has the, has the uh, uh, credibility and good solid relationships with key people that the PMO is expected to work with. And most importantly, has a reputation of, of getting things done. It doesn't matter if it's someone within the operations team. It doesn't matter if someone is within the strategy team who has little to no experience in project management. If they have that reputation, then people will work with them. People will listen to them. And that more than anything else is needed for a PMO leader to succeed. Rounding out the top five, the fifth most watched episode, episode 44, the one about ethics. I mean, well, to me, right, I think I think in for all of us, there's this idea of what does it mean to act with virtue? And that's the piece of that that I am bringing. Right. So in modern parlance, without bringing some other philosophical framework into play, we just have to say, what does it mean to be ethical and do what we do? And I think particularly when we're doing something that's so highly leveraged, right, consulting inside of technology, there's lots of opportunity to be a bad actor. And I think we have to figure out what does that mean to be a good actor and how do we, how can we become the philosopher consultant, right? How can we become the person who acts with virtue inside this space? Where are the guardrails? And the thing is, you might work for a big sophisticated firm that has given you lots of training and you might be with somebody who has never told you anything about it. And you gotta figure that out on your own. So we, I think we ought to talk about that. There's a lot of things we can do as consultants. And of course, there's always the getting more business, more profit as motivator. But at the end of the day, it comes down to integrity of our firm and integrity of us as individuals. Um, you know, things that may be written or not written, such as maybe not taking on work we're not qualified for, providing advice we're not qualified for, things like that. But I also think, I'd like to throw out too, that I think um, in our, our world of, of technology, our very connected world, the choices we make, uh, the things we are involved in for clients, the, the solutions we build, um, I think they have a big impact on the world. And I also think it's, it's up to us to um, you know, think about the stakeholders, think about the impacts of those solutions and, and 
raise our voice, right? When we see concerns and, and help guide in the very important role we are. So is this, is this a thing where it's like, you know, I have an, my, own, my own internal moral code and that, that gets reflected in sort of the ethical values that I, I practice and, uh, and I advise my, cons- my clients on? Or is this, you know, you know there, there should be, you know, like what, what Paul Price talks about, right? About like an, you know, uh, a standard, right? That says, mm. you know, here are the 10 rules of consulting ethics, Right. And if you violate one of them, you, 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 you're kicked out of the bar or whatever. Right. You know, that's sort of like a, like a, like a law person would be right. You, you violate your ethics, you're, you're out consulting. It seems a lot more wishy-washy. I don't know, Phil, is it an internal code or is there something that we can codify here that says it's these 10 rules? I think that's exactly the issue that's here. Right. And the thing is when we start, right, we do a thing and we have, tradition, we have culture, we have the mas maiorum, right? We have these whole ideas that we, but but they're not written down in the beginning. And then we get to the point we write them. And at some point, we might even codify them into law at some point, right? And that and that's the way that we say, we, look, we want to make sure we're all playing by the same rule book. And this is what the rule book looks like. But in this case, I mean, technology has just moved so fast that we've not codified those rules. I mean, if you look like in America, right? We don't have good laws around um, uh, fair trade and all of those kinds of things in the tech space because they just didn't catch up, right? I mean, those the laws haven't caught up. So at the same time, we're trying to figure this out, but we all think we all know what the right thing is. And I'm not even sure we all always agree on it. And that's a conversation that I hope that we are having here today is to say, Look, I mean, there are some rules. We think there are some good go-by rules. And if you're in a regulated industry and you've got, you know, HIPAA or cybersecurity or ISOC or something like that, you've got certain rules around which you must have to follow. But in some places you don't, and you have to make a decision. And we got to figure out how do we how do we come up with that? How do we come up with the rules? And how do we do this in our for ourselves? Governments are definitely paying catch up, aren't they? And I think it's interesting if you look at like you say, Phil, the financial services space with its sort of strict regulatory frameworks that came off the back of, you know, the the, the financial crises that we've had, right? And I think what we're going through, though, is a crisis of, um, you know, in, in, in some cases, democracy, which, which doesn't feel like it's been... I think the reason this is still dragging on is if you look at the sort of digital platform sort of space and the social network space, I don't really... I think most people don't feel like the right regulatory regime or rules or even framework guidelines were put in for these companies to to follow. Um, and governments are still catching up with that. I mean, I know in the UK, we've got stuff going in for telcos, for our telecoms providers and for our critical national infrastructure. But I still don't see yet, um, and maybe it's because of massive lobbying or funding of political parties, I don't see the the the, the, regula- the regulatory you know, laws coming to govern the use of data in the way that we've kind of been talking about, right? And I know this is one specific area because you could apply ethics to a number of different business areas. But for me, the whole data and AI, you know, algorithms that can potentially create adverse outcomes for, you know, the customers that are ultimately using these these things is an area that I feel governments are just way, way behind. And it's, and you know, I still don't see enough signs that it's going to get better quickly. I agree entirely. And I don't want to jump ahead of Wendy, but I mean, I think I agree 
entirely on this. And we don't know. And the thing is, we start with the idea and a naive idea that, oh, if we have this data, we can do some good. But we don't ask ourselves the question, who will do bad with this data? And that is where I think that we get in trouble. And I think Wendy's ready to jump in on that. But No, uh, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think taking an idea of a code or a code of ethics seriously is it's the time to consider this. And if I think about the, the, the doctor's oath, which I won't pretend to be an expert in, but, but it transcends everything, right? Putting the patient first because in, in the role of a consultant, well, where is, where's my, where's my loyalty or where's my honor? Where's my responsibility to my own ethics, to what my consulting firm thinks are ethics, to what the client wants to do, or just to, to really stretch this in the spirit of some of the examples you've given, if the patient in this case is the society and the organizations that contribute to that society, it does put a lot more seriousness on a code and in what we all need to do. And frankly, that that applies to consultants and others, right, that are creating solutions. Yeah, you know, I want to I want to back up on the on the you know governments are way behind and uh, you know arguably. Yes. And of course, they're not experts in any of this. I mean, you think about, you know, like a Facebook, right? And they've got how many tens of thousands of people sitting around trying to figure out how they can use your your picture, right? Or your data, right? And the guy, the poor saps in the bureaucracy in the in Washington, you know, like they can barely, you know, tie their shoes, let alone like figure this stuff out, right? So you know, but but there's there's precedent for not needing some of that in order to get started at the very least, right? I think about like payment card industry, right? Like PCI compliance, right? Yeah, they, they were, but you know what? We're probably going to get regulated on this stuff. We should probably come up with like some standards for our industry. It was, it was market led. It was market driven. Yeah, there was some other stuff around it or like ISO 27001, right? So the international standards around this is right and this is wrong. The consulting industry doesn't have any of that, right? Like we, we were looking at some pre-read stuff, right? And I have it up over here and it's like, you know, here, here's the code of conduct for consultants. And one of them is like, treat others the way you want them to treat you. It's like, really? See, if I don't do that, am I in violation of the ethical code of consulting, right? Like some of this stuff, it, it, it's in my mind, really subjective, really like all over the place. And there's no body that seems to be like, you know, here are the five things you really can't do. You can't get a payout from the client while you're working for them, right? Like, or you can't go to work for the client after you've advised them on yeah. creating a role that happens to be you, right? Like all those sorts of things seem to be things that we could really define. Some of these other things are like, be nice, right? Like, it, it, it's not me. <laughs> Let me just say that way is the golden rule, by the way, that you're quoting, saying, is, oh, that, is, that, <laughs> is that really legitimate or not? I don't know. It sounds like a load of cod swallop to me. <laughs> cod swallop. <laughs> I don't even use that term. And, it, and it's also contextual, too, right? I just think about travels to different parts of the world and what is would be appalling in certain countries and other countries is just sort of the way things work. Right. So there's also that context as well. Bribery, right. Bribery. <laughs> exactly. Right. I, I, I immediately yep. went to the phrase facilitation payment. Yeah. Nice. In some places it's, it's customary and that's the way that business is done. Yeah. And if you don't do it, you don't get your business done. So yeah. does it in become unethical, right? Does it become unethical then? to pay off the guy because he's expecting a bribe. Is that unethical? Let's take that example. Okay, I think that's a great one. Is it unethical in that case? 
because it would go against my internal moral code, right? I, I just I can't bribe someone, right? I just, yeah, the thing is, even in countries in which it is de rigueur, if you are us and you are doing business out of one of our countries, it is illegal. Yes. <laughs> so it's super clear. You're, it is a bright line, right? But, but, but look at the Western uh, world and I'm going to take someone out for a thousand dollar dinner. Okay. Yep. How is right. that really any different to a facilitation payment? Yep. Looks different. Well, no, I, I, I understand your point exactly. And the, the thing is, and we in, at least in the U S have made some of those illegal, <laughs> right. Yeah. And some, you can no longer, I mean, for example, in the consultancy side added towards med, medical doctors and stuff, there are now limits around what you can do. Mm-hmm. And it be legal still. So I think, and that's a case where the law finally catches up and says, well, we left a little hole here and this kind of got out of the way, you know, speakers fees and stuff like that, or what are they, you know, those kinds of things, right? We're, we're, we're still waiting for those speakers fees from, from Chris, right? Yeah. Well, I, I need, you know, by the way, I don't know if you guys know about the Swamp Rabbit Cafe and grocery. Um, they have lots of very sustainable, locally sourced products in beautiful Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, right on the Reedy River, and there's a beautiful bike trail, Oliver. You would love it. Um, I don't know how many miles, Phil. Dozens and dozens of miles of bike trails um, along the river. Yeah. Fantastic, and you can stop at the Swamp Rabbit Cafe and grab a coffee sandwich. So back to bribery and extortion. Um, no, but I think you know. So yeah, like uh, there and and the point I was making earlier about like PCI compliance, right? You feel you're right. There are some there are rules around what's legal and what's not in terms of gifts. But corporations have also we've worked for corporations where they say, listen, if you get anything that's worth more than twenty five bucks, you have to report it. And you know who wants to be reporting gifts that are more than twenty five dollars? You're just like, I'll I'll pay for my own dinner. Thank you, Mister Consultant. I'm paying for my own dinner. I've experienced that going back quite a while, right? So I don't know that it's universal that that nobody cares about these things, right? Some companies do. So yeah. I don't know. So I think that, you know, the question we were trying to get at, I think, is as a consultant, how do you make these? And the thing is, there are, again, we've got some places where it's codified. It's a law. It's a company policy or it's Chris's heart of hearts, right? I mean, what do I think is right? And I think some piece of that might be, you know, to help you as a consultant sort of make a decision where the where the other rules are not so clear is, is it a thing you could be transparent about without consequence? That's a really good way of putting it. Could you tell your mother about it and not feel bad? My mother wouldn't understand. My mother just told me, just I just got off the phone with her. And she said, I was telling people how good you are at what you do, but I told them I don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, thanks, mom. I feel good about that. And it seems like an honest take. <laughs> um, well, we've opened up a lot of interesting topics here, actually. Um, yeah. I think absent of standards and in, in, in ethics that are really solid and clear, I think at a minimum, just the reflection for individuals on what they believe and where their lines are. But I also think we're in a very interesting shifting world where what's okay today is not necessarily okay tomorrow. So yeah. even more important that I think, you know, when we think about our own individual integrity brand behavior is to, yeah, be looking ahead a little bit um, and, and thinking about, you know, what's the impact on, on all stakeholders really. And, 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 
knowing that how we show up as individuals, we can hopefully influence others to to make changes and and act with integrity as well. You know, I, I like this idea of, you know, if you're doing something and you would be totally okay with everyone you know knowing all the details of whatever it is that you're doing. Maybe it's, you know, I don't know if it's okay, but at the very least, it's at least in alignment with what you think is okay, right? Um, you know, if it's, you know, God, you know, I really hope uh, someone doesn't find out that I'm, I don't know, bribing the guy or whatever, right? Um, then that's probably not something you should be doing. And, you know, I, I think there's even, you know, already sort of alluded to it, right? It's a little bit like, you know, there may be rules for, for professional conduct in this company, I am not comfortable bribing somebody. And even though that's what is expected as, you know, so I got to go find another job if I'm going to adhere to that, that ethical moral code. I don't know. Phil, last, last thoughts. You're going to bring up stoicism because I want to hear what Marcus Aurelius would have to say about, about that. I already brought it up. I mean, we passed right by it. We, you know, we'll do what wisdom, courage, temperance, and justice tell you to do. Right. I think in um, the thing, I think from a practical wisdom standpoint, right. I, I, would, I want to take what Oliver said, just like one more step. And that is, if you're feeling uncomfortable with something, ask. Just lay it out and say, hey, you know what? I'm not comfortable here. Should I be? Am I misunderstanding something? But I think too much of the time, we want to demonstrate competence. We want to appear integrated when we are not integrated. We are questioning the moment. It's okay to ask questions. That's your job, for God's sake. You're a consultant. Your job is to ferret out to the truth of the matter. And you do that by asking questions. So ask. Thanks for watching these five episodes. This is the top five of our 50 episodes to date. So listen, if you want to know more, if you want to watch these episodes, which you probably should, right? At least listen to them. You should definitely go to www.consultantsayingthings.com or check out the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash things. Easy to find. Find us on LinkedIn. Hit us up. Always interested in new topics. Always interested in nice guests that have something interesting to say. Um, yeah, this is, this is one of the best things I've ever done. Um, and I get to talk to amazing people uh, over the past four years. Um, and I want to keep doing it. So uh, hit us up. Like and subscribe. Thank you very much.